0: Hey, everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel, the gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. are doing our first episode after the introduction of common challenges for Christians. And today we're going to be talking about shame, but we wanted to give a little bit of an update of some of our timeline for these episodes. It's been a bit hard to get things out lately and to work together just because life's been a bit crazy for each of us. So I don't know, Greg, if you want to share a little bit about what's been going on in your life.
1: Well, for the past couple of months, my wife Gretchen has been really sick and we just had a baby, um, four months ago. So things have been a little bit crazy, but we found out that Gretchen needed to have her gallbladder removed, uh, because almost anything she was eating was making her throw up. And so thankfully we got that out and taken care of. We're in the emergency room Christmas Eve and Christmas, just dealing with all that. But the next week after that, we're able to get her gallbladder out and have been in a bit of the recovery mode after that. So thankfully she's doing well and getting better, but still always significant to have an organ taken out on top of the, uh, newborn phase. So we've been keeping our hands full, but that's why we've been a little bit delayed. So I will take the responsibility for that.
0: Yeah. We're glad, glad she's on the up and we know that three kids, three and under with surgery is, uh, that's no joke. And life has been busy for Doug and I with ministry. Doug with seminary. I'm a, I'm on a break for seminary right now just because the ministry demands have been a bit more in the last several months. Um, but knowing that we are, yeah, going through, going through quite a bit. And so as we're talking about things like anxiety, fear, shame, all those things. Well, those are those are realities that we're up against as well, and and we're walking through. And so we hope this series is helpful just even from that level of these aren't things that we've escaped from completely, but things we're genuinely walking through together and trying to seek the Lord. And so today we're starting with shame and I'll, I'll, I'll begin with the Merriam Webster definition of shame, just textbook. Uh, and that would be shame is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt shortcoming or impropriety impropriety. And so Shame can be because of your own guilt or your own sin, or it can be something that you're not actually responsible for, something that you feel a sense of unworthiness, lowliness because of. But we don't probably need to entirely dissect this word shame a ton, because it's something that we all know and are acquainted with. We actually see it show up in the first pages of scripture. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. And then when they sin, instantly the result is that they are ashamed and they hide themselves from the Lord. And so we see it show up very early on in Scripture. And one of the big themes that runs through Scripture is shame and how God deals with that shame. And Doug, there's a passage I know that you were thinking about sharing from Zechariah 3 that just gives such a
2: beautiful picture of how the Lord does deal with shame. Yeah, Zechariah 3 is a vision that Zechariah has, and it's in the context of several visions that open the book talking about how the Lord is going to bring about redemption in the world. And this central vision has the high priest of Israel, Joshua, standing in the temple, the holy of holies before the Lord, but he's dressed in filthy clothes. Like the Garden of Eden, they're naked and they're ashamed of their nakedness. Here, he's clothed, but his clothing actually, again, produces shame. And Satan is there, Satan's name even meaning accuser. And it says that Satan, the accuser, is standing there to accuse him. But then the Lord speaks and says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And the angel of the Lord comes and says to Joshua, we're going to remove your filthy garments and clothe you with holy and pure garments. So Joshua here is in the spot of shame because he is before the Lord in a way that he is not to be impure. But what's the solution for him? It has to be that the Lord speaks that the Lord does something to remove his uncleanness and to bring him purity. And this is pointing forward ultimately to what Christ will do, because only Christ can truly address the nakedness, the impure clothing that we've got to clothe us with his righteousness. But it's so easy for us to turn from the clothing that Christ gives in himself but to find other ways to deal with or to try and cover our shame. So as you guys think through bad ways to deal with shame, what are some of the common ones you see?
1: Yeah, I I love the perspective that what covers our shame and what gives us a new identity is something outside of us. It's the gospel. It's what Christ has done for us on the cross, and he's given us a new identity. He's forgiven our sins. He's taken the shame and the guilt and the punishment for our sins that we deserve. But the tendency that I think I can have, that all of us can have, and that our culture has is trying to go inward and trying to rationalize things or justify ourselves or— try to think, okay, I'm not that bad of a person. And we're looking for solutions that are inside of us instead of something that's external. And that's so easy to do. And along those lines, something that you'll often hear people talk about is I just have to forgive myself in order to get over my shame. I'd have to forgive myself for things in my past. And what we believe is that this really isn't going to fix the core of the problem. And this idea of forgiving ourselves isn't something that we see in the Bible because it's not really the answer to what we need because what we need is the gospel.
0: Yeah. And it's not as though we're opposed to forgiveness. I mean, we (laughs) believe that Christ died to forgive our sins. And yet, Greg, I think what you're saying is so helpful of an inward turn. Like I'm going to find that forgiveness in myself. I'm going to manifest it from myself. It's going to come out of, you know, my own understanding. And yet the problem is if you've offended someone else, predominantly if we've offended a holy God, then you need forgiveness from that God ultimately. And that's like in Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned. And so that becomes a problematic way of going about it. There's a minimizing, I think, or hiding, those could go together. Hiding could be um, like Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm just going to try and put this away. I'm not going to let anyone know what I've done, know my past, know the things that bring me shame, know my addictions, know what I look at online, know the, the conversations I've had, you know, whatever it might be. That's sort of a, the hiding, but then I think the minimizing is like you're talking about of, I'm going to rationalize my way through it. I, I'm, I'm going to find a way to accept myself, but often that acceptance really only comes as we cheapen the sin so that it becomes so small that acceptance is possible, but that becomes problematic when we know our sin to be greater and when our shame actually is too great to actually just rationalize away, or if that sin actually exists and that shame actually exists because of a real guilt. And it's not something just imagined in our minds that needs to be dealt with. And that becomes problematic.
2: If somebody means forgive yourself in the sense, accept that because of what Jesus has done, you are truly forgiven. Then yeah, we can agree with that, but it's still probably a bad phrasing it because we really have no authority to forgive ourselves. If I have sinned against my wife, it's like, well, I'm just going to forgive myself for this. It's like, no, I actually need to go and tell Reagan, I'm sorry for doing this. Will you forgive me? Because it's not just that I've done something that I don't want to do, but actually hurt her. If somebody is financially taking advantage of poor kids in a city to say to that person, oh, just forgive yourself. No, they actually need to make restitution. They need to make this right. And for us, as we have the hope of the gospel, is that Christ does make things right. We need to look to him to actually deal with it and then to be changed. So that idea of just forgive yourself doesn't ultimately work with any real problems that we're addressing. Yeah, such a good point. Another one... To look at, perhaps the last one is self-flagellation,
0: and this is a weird term, but I use it. To flagellate is to to whip, um, beat yourself up, beat yourself up. Um, and if you look at some of the old school monks, you'll find weird practices, ways that they like did penance, like you know, a sense of like punishment for the wrong they had done. And the ways that they would cause themselves physical pain. So whether that's standing in cold water, I believe flagellation was one of those whipping yourself, whatever it might be, fasting you know to extremes. There's healthy fasting disciplines, of course, but uh, extremes of these, just like I'm going to cause my body pain. And we look at that and we say, you know, that that's absurd. But in a sense, that still exists in our culture. I mean, we know that there's ways that people um, express their pain and shame through self-harm. And that's a reality. But then there's also the way that we can do that verbally. It can be a sense of, ah, I'm just a terrible, wretched, terrible person. And it's sort of this, I'm going to beat myself up so badly that I'm going to show that I'm really worthy of forgiveness or grace. And if I could just feel terrible about myself and if I can express that, it's sort of the, I'm going to reject myself so that others don't have to, or I'm going to show myself hatred so that um, out of a fear of being hated, rejected, pushed aside. And I think that self-flagellation, whether physical through um, self-harm or whether through verbal, emotional, just self-hatred, it can just be such a downward spiral that is a way that we try and deal with the pain of our shame, but doesn't ultimately again deal with the root cause.
1: Yeah, and I think just along those lines, this is a topic that I just want to tread carefully on because I know that that, that idea of self-hate um is something I have seen in a lot of people and just this feeling of man, I'm so unworthy. And we can all experience portions of that ourselves where i think of sin in my past or i think of situations where i was just a bad witness for christ or just memories that i have of past areas of the deepest darkest areas of shame in my life and you can just feel physical pain when you think about those things and it is it can be hard to really get your eyes off of those things to look to the gospel and so i think that if that's what you're going through the idea of self-hatred there really is hope but just It's, again, not going to be by rationalizing or saying, okay, it wasn't that bad. But I think what the gospel really gives us the freedom to do is look at those deepest, darkest areas of shame in our life and really believe that that's where Christ went to the cross to take our sins. And he knew those places. And so even if the worst things that could be true about me that I fear being true about me are, those really aren't what define me because christ gives me a new identity and i think that for me has been very freeing at times when i look at areas of sin in my life of wrestling with lust like what if i am a lustful person what if um you know what if i just am apathetic towards the lord or what if i do have a tendency to turn to idols whatever those be and what if i am a slave to people's approval I can look at those things and say, you know, I am acting in this way. And yet what's most true about me is not that, but that Christ has taken that sin. He knew I was going to fall short in those ways. He still loved me, went to the cross, and now I'm a child of God and forgiven and loved and given a new identity and given a hope over these things. Because what ultimately defines me is that, and those things really have no power because on judgment day, they won't be held against me because Christ has taken them on the cross.
2: It is A sweet thing that the gospel speaks a better word than our shame does. Yeah. And part of what we want to do is figure out how do we listen to what the gospel actually says? Because there's so many thoughts that run through our mind or from culture or from things that other people have said to you or things that have been done to you or remembrance of what you've done yourself that promote shame that's antithetical to the gospel. But I think one of the things that's helpful for me to think through is why is it that these ridiculous thoughts that cause so much pain would find so much ground in our lives? Like, am I just a fool that this is happening? Or what is it about this that in some twisted way is almost helping me? And I think if I begin to realize, one, that I realize that I'm under the wrath of God, that there actually is something wrong, then I can see, oh, my shame is a way to try and take control of that and to deal with it myself versus having to lose control and to trust the Lord. Sometimes it's a way, if I remember ways that I've been mean to people in the past and constantly remember that, it's a way to try and motivate myself to Be nicer to other people. It doesn't work. It's a bad way to go about it. But there's some of this sense of trying actually to deal with the brokenness that we have, but it's just a broken cistern. It doesn't provide life, but the gospel actually gives living water to address this. So we're going to move now into how is it that the gospel begins to really address our shame
0: For how the gospel addresses our shame, we've talked about this framework of head, heart, hands, and that this is not the perfect one-size-fits-all framework, but it's hopefully helpful as we talk about these things that head is what are these truths that we need to know? Heart is how do we believe those truths in our heart? Like how do those impact our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our understanding of ourselves? And then hands, how is this lived out? So head would be like, the truth of the gospel, that you are loved. Heart would be the reality and the experience of that, and hands would be the way that the love of God plays out in our lives, if that would make sense. So here, let's start with head. What are the truths that we need to know from scripture as we address shame? I'll start a bit with my own story, and I've shared this some in recent or past podcasts, and so I won't go too much into this, but I would just say When we talk about that sense of self-hatred, I've lived in that before. I especially think after my senior year of high school, I experienced just a season where my shame and anxiety was so great that I just felt overwhelmed. The feeling I describe it with is that feeling when you get pushed back in a chair and your heart jumps and the feeling when you see something grotesque or violent and you just reel back, you're like, oh, that's gross. So the shock and the horror over my sin – Things I had done years ago just just almost stuck on repeat in my head in compulsive ways. And so I lived in that, that for quite some time. And I, I was not suicidal at that point, but I often felt like I wanted to be dead. And I just want to share two verses that were so pivotal for me in that time. The first one is Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What this verse is saying is that if you are in Christ, you will not be condemned, judged, or put to shame by God because of your sin. We know the term condemned in a modern sense through houses. If a house is condemned, it's like you cannot live in this house because it might sink into the ground. It is unsafe. It's condemned. And it's a declaration of judgment. And what it's saying here is if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Christ has dealt with that, and that verse just this idea of whatever sin comes to my mind, this simple, clear, precise truth that cuts away that shame and says, "There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Doesn't matter what it is in the past. Doesn't matter what is in the present. Doesn't matter what it will be in the future. You will not be condemned in Christ." That was huge, and then Romans five eight is the other one. Romans 5, 8 says, but God chose his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. What I think is so important about that verse is a lot. But one thing is that God chose his love while we were still sinners. Not when we had done anything to say, God, look, I'm I'm worthy of your love. But while we were sinners and just even the idea that God loved me before I had done anything to deserve his love. It is truly an unconditional love. And God loved me when I was in my sin, which is why he sent Christ out of his great love and kindness towards me. And so this idea on my worst day, I know God loves me because he loved me before I did anything good for him. And on my best day, I know that God's love for me is not dependent upon me. It precedes anything that I have done. God sent his son to be the savior of the world in love for us before we had done anything. So there's a love and a kindness that then comes and changes us and transforms us and brings acceptance. And those verses have just been so foundational for me as just fighting verses. There's no condemnation and I'm loved on my worst day because God loved me when I was a sinner.
1: I think that idea of just... God choosing to love us before, not dependent on us, but on him, is so powerful. And Ephesians 1 talks about that and gives such a vivid picture that he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, he chose us. And so he knew all the ways we were going to fall short, all the ways we were going to um, blow it day after day, and yet he went to the cross to bring us to himself to adopt us into his family, to forgive us for all of our sins, uh, knowing that we were going to, you know, stumble in the pathway to obedience. And that's that's just such an encouraging truth. A couple other verses that just come to my mind are Isaiah one eighteen that says we're white as snow, and 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says we're the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And... Uh, Colossians one twenty one says, we're, uh, "We were enemies of God, but now He's reconciled us by Christ, by to present us holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation." And that's that's pretty crazy when you think about that, because there's a lot of accusations you could level against all of us, and yet <laughs> <laughs> because of the cross. God can say, there's no sin in that man. There's no sin in that woman. And when we stand before God one day on judgment day, he's not going to hold our sin against us. And that's so incredible uh, just to know that truth. He's not going to condemn us for our sin. We're not going to be banished from his presence. We're not going to have to experience the guilt and punishment for our sins. And so I think as Doug was just talking about earlier, that head idea here is when I I'm talking to myself when I'm sharing these thoughts of shame or insufficiencies or doubts that I'm just not a good person or trying to justify, I'm a good person, whatever it is, instead of listening to what I'm saying, we do need to talk to ourselves and say, this is what's true about me, that I am forgiven, that I am justified, that I am loved, that I am clean because of the cross. Mm.
2: One of our key verses for this series is Titus 211 11-14, talking about the grace of God appearing and transforming us. And one of the hopes that we have is that the gospel deals with all of the sources of shame that we have, whether those are legitimate or illegitimate sources of shame, that God's grace is actually transforming us, making us more like Christ. But one of the struggles, including in shame, is that that process is slower than I often want it to be. And it's frustrating to know when is it that I'm feeling a right conviction of sin versus shame. And probably the verses that are most helpful for me in that are 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10, which talk about godly grief versus worldly grief. Because Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians convicting them and rebuking them for their sin. And they were grieved. And here's what Paul has to say about this situation. As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And I think that's such a fascinating statement that there is a repentance And grief over the sin in my life that would produce salvation without regret. When we think about shame, so much more our experience is this worldly grief producing death and sorrow and pain and brokenness. But there's also a type of grief that's a right conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit that produces a repentance, a returning to the Lord, looking to him for life, because we see that we've sinned against him, he's forgiven us, but we are looking to him to be restored in relationship. So I think that is a really helpful question for me of is what I'm feeling right now, a worldly grief and shame? Or is it a godly grief that's producing repentance that's turning me to the Lord, or that's causing me to turn away from him and look to myself and find death?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's just a great way to think about it. Is my sin leading me to God or away? Am I running away from him or am I feeling closer to him? Because I, it's leading me right to the cross and my need for Christ and the truth that I am forgiven and loved by God. That's, that's a great distinction there.
2: It also relates to one of the other key verses that we have, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And what I love about this verse is it's telling us, focus on Christ as he is now at the right hand of God. And what I realized in looking at this verse and a few others a few years ago is I didn't quite know what it was talking about. Because what it's saying is, look to Jesus as he is now, ascended and glorified, and realize that you will be with him when he returns. So what it's saying is, do you understand how Christ's ongoing ministry today influences your life? Because often we can talk about how the cross and the resurrection are significant, but what this verse is saying is focus on Christ today as he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. As Christ is reigning in glory, look to him there. Did you guys have other verses that talk about the ongoing work of Christ? One of the verses that goes with that, the idea of Christ's continual ministry is
0: Hebrews seven. 25. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And there's a promise here that he's able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him in Christ since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it is an astounding thought that Christ's role as our priest, the one who presents us before God, the one who gives us access to the father is an ongoing role. His sacrifice is once and for all. And so he finishes his role of sacrifice. And yet he always lives as our priest, as the mediator between God and man. And just even for me thinking that today Christ is alive as our priest in heaven, always able to plead our innocence before the father to give us access that today he is alive today his ministry continues and that he has stepped into that ministry by his finished work on the cross but now he always lives to make intercession for his
2: people that's an amazing reality for us mm-hmm. similarly Romans 8:34 asks the question who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, this passage and Hebrews 7 both talk about Christ today interceding and praying for his people. And he is the reason that we are not condemned, both in his death and resurrection. But also now, as he continues to represent us to God, Jesus is praying for us, and the Father wants us to be with him. So, to remember that today, Christ is still working for us. This is where the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, is so beautiful because it talks about the work that Christ is continuing to do. It says, of Jesus, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God. The just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Mm -hmm. And the reality there that Jesus is our perfect righteousness. He stands before the father and we are seated with God in Christ is what Ephesians two tells us that our standing before God is like Christ. We're with him. Or accepted because of all that Christ has done. So when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt and the shame within, look to Christ.
0: We got a lot of really good truth there in the head, some good verses there, just full of truth and reality. Let's move on to the heart then and ask this question. When you're struggling, in shame, on a heart level? How do you take that truth, that reality, and how do you make that pivot to, okay, let's live in this. Let's feel this. Let's know this. Let's experience this beautiful reality of the gospel of Christ's forgiveness, of his continuing intercession. What advice would you guys have just in our
2: own battle with shame in those ways? Mark, when I consider heart level, believing this, two things really come to mind one is just considering who jesus really is that he is gentle and lowly in heart and if we come to him we'll find rest for our souls that it says that a bruised reed he wouldn't break a smoldering wick he wouldn't snuff out he welcomes the little children to him he allows um tax collectors and sinners to eat with him. He casts demons out of people and then calls them to follow him. This is the Jesus that we serve, one who is gentle and lowly and who comforts those who are struggling. And that's the very heart of who he is and that his heart reveals the heart of the father to us, that the father actually is merciful and gracious in ways that go beyond our understanding So I can be comforted by the fact that God is not like me, but that he is so generous in his forgiveness in ways that I don't feel like I deserve it. Because there's a half truth to the reality that I don't deserve to be accepted and forgiven. But there's a greater truth that God forgives because of who he is. Another second idea that's just so astounding to me that started to sit in, or set in maybe a year and a half ago, was the idea that Jesus is not ashamed to call me brother, which is what Hebrews 2.11 says, that he really took on our humanity. He identifies with us. He's sympathetic. He suffered when he was tempted, and he is not ashamed to call me his brother. And that is absolutely astounding. And I need to remind myself of that. All the time. That if you follow Jesus. He is not ashamed to identify with you. let's bask in the beauty of that. That's good.
0: It is an incredible reality that. Christ is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us. He doesn't merely put up with us. But he truly does. Love us. And we really are changed. To be like him. And accepted with them. The idea of forgiving yourself is something that we pushed back on and I, I want to come back to it for a moment just because I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic towards it. And when I say that I mean I'm sympathetic to the idea of if you live in shame and guilt it will consume you. And like we said it's, it's not the real solution to forgive yourself but I think to rephrase that to say accept the forgiveness God has for you to accept the forgiveness God has for you, like, Ooh, there, there's, there's actually what the gospel speaks receive forgiveness. It's not something that you have to generate, but it's actually something that is freely given in Christ. And so this idea of forgiving yourself, I think, I think when you come up to that shame, when you come up to the difficulty to say, okay, there is forgiveness available. There is grace available and it's turning your mind then to these realities, turning your heart then to these realities. I think it might be a Shane and Shane song or something that talks about how essentially Satan preaches the first part of the gospel of you've sinned, you've done all these things, whatnot. But like you said, Doug, the bigger, truer story is, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I am unworthy. And yet God loved me when I had done nothing for him. And so he loves me he cares for me and he sent his son for me so i even just think of when shame comes up let it be the beginning of your process here's something to deal with here's something to walk through but like we said don't don't let it be a, a worldly guilt that leads you to despair let it be a godly guilt that leads you to joy and if our shame can actually be an occasion of walking to the cross and experiencing the joy of forgiveness and maybe that even shifts our perspective when it when the anxiety when the fear arises in our heart we allow it to be something that drives us to the joy of the gospel we say this is part of the story spoken but it is not the full reality and then it can also be twisted in the way that it's presented and it's i think allows us to then experience that grace what about practically on a, on a hands level what are some ways that you guys have found helpful to maybe with each other to actually deal with shame or, or just in your life, what are some good practices?
1: Yeah, I, one uh, passage that sticks out to me on that is First John one, and it talks about walking in the light together and really experiencing the forgiveness of God for our sins. And it talks about that in a community oriented way, where this is something that we're doing as a group of believers. And I think that. It's just so important to have people in our life that can really help us tangibly experience the gospel. And so for all three of us, it's been so powerful to um, just call each other a lot in our lives when we're wrestling with shame or guilt or sin or whatever it is and just say, hey, I'm wrestling with this or this is on my mind and it's heavy. And hearing someone, they can listen, understand, sympathize, but also point you to What the gospel, the truth of the gospel is, and what you need to hear, and sometimes it can be a harder (laughs) truth of like you need to be really careful, or you need to get out of this. But often I think for a lot of us, we kind of have soft, or we can be sensitive to our sin, and so often as we call each other, what we really need to hear is the truth of the gospel that I'm, yeah, I am forgiven of this. This isn't what defines me. There is not condemnation for those in Christ, and it's just really powerful to hear other believers remind us of that truth in a way that maybe we feel stuck in it if it's just us thinking about in our headspace.
0: I know that's been so helpful for me, Greg, and you and Doug have been that for me. We're probably on a, a monthly, if more maybe often weekly basis. There are times where I just need to call and talk because shame is probably one of the biggest things that I really wrestle with. And that idea of just having people who for lack of a better term, or maybe I like this term, but who you can kind of spill your guts on or you can bleed on. It's like people who are okay with you just spilling it and just saying like, wow, like, yeah, that's intense. And I think for me in my past, there are events, which I've been horrified of telling people about. And one of the most liberating things I've been able to do is to people I really, really trust, just say it, just say what actually has happened um, not because those people have the power to give you the grace of God, but I think actually in community, sometimes we reflect for one another and give us each other a picture of what God's love and kindness and forgiveness is like. And it's it's not a I forgive you, but it's you know what the scripture tells you and just a reaffirmation of as you walk in shame the Lord does forgive you. Like that is not who you are. That's not how I see you. And I don't see you that way because I'm believing the truth of what God says. And I think the community has of an ability to reaffirm the true identity that God has given us. And that's one of the values I think of just vulnerability with one another is it gives us an ability to be reaffirmed
2: in the truth of God's word that we desperately, desperately need. Guys, I think what you're saying there is helpful because one of the bad habits of shame is to try and hide or to try and cover up or to minimize. But if we can be honest with other people and bring things into the light, it's an opportunity to experience the gospel in the body of Christ. And things that I've dealt with in secret in the darkness don't get resolved there. I've tried a lot, but there's something that God is designed for growth, for healing in community. Community is so helpful. Then a few final things
0: I'll end with on a pretty practical level. I think scripture memory is such such a powerful thing. I think John Piper talks about fighter verses, and I think that's such a good framework of and I mentioned something to that effect earlier, but just having those fighter verses. Like what are those verses you just cling to? Like memorize those. Take Romans 8 1. And commit it to your memory so that the moment that comes up, you are ready to fight. And knowing that there's a battle for your mind in that sense. Maybe that's just spending time reading through the Psalms. Like having a place like that where you just find refresh. Find passages of scripture that reveal this truth to you in incredible ways. And just let those be reality. I know for me, listening to good worship music... Uh, classic hymns that have done been done in contemporary ways. Those hap- happen to be something that really helped me. Uh, listening to good preaching. There's just a lot of practical things like that that I know that day-to-day filling my mind can be really helpful. And I find that at times when I get distracted, going back to some of those things can be a really helpful refocus. And I've just benefited from that lately and some of my anxiety of going to good worship music that just does something on a heart level. And each person is going to be unique and probably have different ways that they find themselves encouraged in the word and by the Lord. But I think to find those things, to know those things and allow those things to be just a way of get in community and and find ways that just feed your soul with the truth of God's word. So we hope this episode has been helpful. We know that there's so much more we could address in shame in a sense we're We're trying to get to the heart of it, but also feel like we're just scratching the surface because there's a lot of other topics that we could hit on with shame. But our hope is this, that we would remember that God has an unconditional love for us in Christ, that he has loved us. He is with us. He cares for us. And even today, Christ lives to make intercession for God's people. And so, as Doug, you shared, when we are in those places, where do we look? We look up and before the throne of God. We look to Christ, who
2: is our hope. And he is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. So look to him. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high with Christ, my Savior and my God.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.